Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Revelation is an amazing journey. And these first few chapters, uh, the outline is pretty simple. The things uh, that you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will come to pass, the things which will be. Chapter 1 John has this amazing revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word revelation simply means uncovering, making manifest, taking something that has not been known fully and revealing it. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him come to this earth in the sense of all that's recorded in the Gospels. He goes to the cross and he dies so that we might have life and we have that sense of him But remember, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and one day he's coming back on a horse. He's coming for judgment. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to rule and reign physically from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it's an amazing journey that leads us to those moments. I don't believe those moments have taken place yet. Some people believe we're already in the millennium, and I don't see the lion laying down with the lamb. (laughs) I think that's a pretty no-brainer, right? It's pretty much a no-brainer. It's coming. And we don't want to get caught off guard, folks. We don't want to get caught off guard where when we see Jesus face to face somehow, some way, uh, that we're ashamed at his appearing. We want to be ready. We don't want to get caught off guard. This morning, I had something happen to me that's never happened in my entire life. It was indescribable. My family's traveling a little bit right now, and so we've got space for one car in the garage. And I pulled in last night, we had gone to dinner, and I pulled in last night to the uh, driveway, and I thought, well, I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can baby my truck a little bit, you know? And I thought, I'll put it into the garage. So I sure did. I opened up the garage door, pulled into the garage door, fit perfectly. Man, I was so thrilled. I I thought, man, it's going to be cold in the morning. I can get into my truck, not worry about the, the engine not being warmed up enough and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, man, this is great, this is great. Went, you know, bed, woke up this morning, got all ready, came out, packed some stuff because we've got our pastor retreat, which I appreciate you praying for us on, and got all my stuff in the car, got into the truck, put it into reverse, started backing out. Oh, the garage door was open. Come on now. But I looked, thankfully, through my rearview mirror, and the garage door was coming down. And as soon as I saw it, I went, what? You know, panic, adrenaline, Hulk, boom, put it into drive, pulled forward. I thought, what is the, did I hit the button? I mean, what did I do with this thing? You know, how in the world is the garage door going down? So I got out of the truck real quick, and I looked, and I'm thinking, and the string. You know what I'm talking about? The little thing you can pull and you can make it manual. You can, you know, manipulate the garage door. I had shut the door on the string. And so it had popped the thing and it started to, when I started backing out, it was pulling the garage door down with me. I want to tell you something. That caught me off guard. (laughs) Have you ever done that before? I was was like, thank you, Lord. I could see me coming today telling you, I just backed through my whole garage door and I, you know. We get caught off guard by stuff, don't we? We really do. Life happens and things begin to take place and suddenly we find ourselves tripping and stumbling into the middle of trials and circumstances that we didn't anticipate, we didn't expect. 
Folks, I want to tell you something. If anything, Revelation is a declaration that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back soon, and we ought not be caught off guard. Are we ready to see Jesus face to face? Are we ready that when the Lord comes to take us home, we're ready to see him face to face? We're walking with him moment by moment, day by day. Our lives are yielded to him. The messages to the churches are clearly important. I went through this a few years ago, and so I'm just going to give you some overview. We're going to look at the first four this morning. And then Richard Ross is coming next week. And I want to tell you something, folks. You, you know, you really, I want to encourage you to make it a point to come to listen to Richard. Godly man, dear man. He's going to talk about multi-generational church talk about how we as the family of God need to come alongside of our students and our children to really encourage them, build relationships with them, be in prayer for them, because statistically it is very, very clear, very clear, that when our students have significant relationships with those in other generations, they stay in church. When they do not, they're out. They're out. We have got to help these younger generations and come alongside of them in order to build relationship, to be in prayer with them so that they can grow in Christ and that they recognize that they are a part of the body of Christ. They're a part of the body and it's meaningful for them to be here. It's essential. Let me just give you a couple overview moments. And in the midst of this, as we look at these different churches, I want to get this into our minds. We are to heed what the Lord has to say, and we are to heed quickly, quickly. Delayed obedience is not obedience. You catch it? Delayed obedience is not obedience. We are to listen to what the Lord has to say. We are to hear what the Spirit has to say. We are to immediately, in our hearts and our minds, make sure that we're in alignment with who He is and walking with Him. Delayed obedience is not obedience. The seven churches that are represented here, you can see a map of this. It's a fascinating picture because you start with Ephesus, you go to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and you end with Laodicea. And the Lord gives John these messages to the churches, and it's fascinating because there's really three levels that I believe that the Lord is dealing with. The first is specific message to the church itself. When he says to the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. He is referring specifically to that particular local body of believers in that area, the church of Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira, etc. But I also believe that he's referring to believers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All believers... At all times, at all stages, no matter what uh, period of time in human history, need to take note. Because any church in any period of history, at any moment, could take on some of the characteristics of a particular church. You might see in the church of Ephesus, they left their first love, and that is very pertinent to our church today. Or you may look at Smyrna, and you look at the way they're being persecuted, and that may be very pertinent to our church today. 
So it becomes not only to the specific church, but it also is a message to all believers at all times, at all stages, no matter what period of human history. And thirdly, you also have, in effect, a layout of church history starting from the apostolic age to the end, the Laodicean age. Church of Ephesus representing the apostolic age and the church of Laodicea representing the end. You have this amazing picture of church history. Some of this, therefore, becomes prophetic. I believe we're in the Laodicean age. And so when we begin to look at what are the characteristics of the church of Laodicea in a couple weeks, I think it's very essential that we understand that, that we recognize that in church history, this is probably the time frame that we are as a church body, Hoffmantown Church, in. And then we need to make sure that the things that are being worn there, that we are walking with the Lord carefully, making sure that faith is that which uh, is descriptive of our lives and our walk with Christ. So there's three basic stages, three ways in which the Lord is using these messages to the churches. Secondly, there's a general pattern of the Lord's message to each church. And you can go to different commentaries and look at different things. Some have five, some have six. I put it as five. Uh, the first is that there's a statement concerning himself that he gives to the church. He introduces himself. And usually that statement is very specific to what he's about to say. He warns them, etc. But in his introduction, he gives a picture of who he is. And the characteristic that he presents usually is very pertinent to the church and the message that he gives to that church. Secondly, there's a commendation to the church, perhaps, we see in some of the churches, there's, no, there's not a commendation. But usually the pattern is he introduces himself. Secondly, there's a commendation. Thirdly, there's a dealing with the church's sin, if there is any. And we're going to see in Smyrna that he, he doesn't tell them to repent of something. He doesn't deal with church's sin. He simply commends them, and he tells them to keep on going. But the pattern within all the churches is that there's an introduction. There's a commendation to the church. You're doing this well, if they are doing something well. And then there's a dealing with their sin. Now, folks, understand what I'm saying here. This is not an issue of them just making a few mistakes. This is called sin. And in our day and age, and I would suggest the Laodicean age, we really hate the word sin. We don't like this being opened up. We don't like this being uncovered. We don't like the dirty laundry out for everybody to see. But we got to deal with this. Because it's a root problem, it's a root issue. And if the shoe fits, wear it. Confess it, thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God that we can experience cleansing from Christ. These messages pull no punches. He deals with sin and he commands the church, if there's sin, to repent. Change your mind about what you're doing. Recognize that what I'm telling you is true. Recognize that what you're doing is wrong. Repent of it. Change your mind about this. And the implication is, come to me, receive confession and cleansing, be restored into a proper right relationship with me, and move on. Be useful 
to me. And lastly, there's a promise. There's a promise to those who are overcomers. To those who are overcomers. So those are the patterns. Those are the the way in which this is addressed. This is how the Lord presents these messages to John. And he tells John in chapter 1, I want you to write these things. And so the message to the churches. Let's start with Ephesus. This is the church reflecting the apostolic church, probably A.D. 30 to 100. Right After Pentecost, the church began at Pentecost, and you have from approximately A.D. 30 to 100 where you have the apostolic church. In verse 1, the Lord holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks amongst the candlesticks. He introduces himself this way. And if you go back and you look at chapter 1, verse 20, it's very clear what the, the stars and the candlesticks are. The stars are those who are the leaders of the churches. The candlesticks are the churches themselves. And the idea is that he holds these in his right hand. He has all authority. All authority. Leaders are his. The churches are his. He is the Lord, and he has the right in the midst of these churches and with these leaders to say what to do, when to do it, why to do it, to repent as necessary, etc., In verses 2 through 6, the Lord commends the Ephesian believers for their work, their integrity regarding so-called apostles, as well as their hatred of the Nicolaitans. We're going to see the Nicolaitans pop up later. The church of Ephesus hated the Nicolaitans. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, they were probably individuals who were teaching immorality, similar to Balaam, which we'll see in a different church. In other words, that immorality or fornication was acceptable behavior for believers. But it also may be that the Nicolaitans, because the word Nike, we get the word Nike from it, meaning victory over the people. Nicolaitans lay us as people, so victory over the people. It may be that the Nicolaitans had come into the church and they had begun to develop inordinate authority. They had created a class of believers that were considered to be better than other believers. There was an authority issue here. There was a putting down of the people of God. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that all people who are believers can hear from the Lord, have a personal walk with the Lord, can learn from the Lord through his word because the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. We don't believe in a special class where the value of that class is greater than the value of a different class. We do believe that there is authority. We do believe there are certain roles. We do believe that elders have been called to help oversee, that pastors are there to help shepherd, etc. But fundamentally, we believe in the body of Christ. We believe that we all are able to hear from the Lord. And as I've shared with you before, the difference between elders is a calling as well as there is very clear uh, characteristics of an individual who is to be an elder. If they don't have those characteristics, they can't be an elder, shouldn't be. But in the midst of it, what are we talking about? Elders are not the only ones that hear from God. Elders are the ones who are supposed to make sure that God is heard. Because the Lord is the head. The Lord is the shepherd. We follow him. So in the midst of this, he commends them. He says to the Ephesian believers, you hate the Nicolaitans. You recognize that what they're doing is wrong. 
There's a lot of good things about the Ephesian believers. They didn't want to walk in immorality. They were persevering. They were doing all the things that in effect from the exterior were good. But in verse 4, the Lord knows their hearts. And he says, this I have against you. You have left your first love. Left your first love. John Walver puts it this way. Though they had not departed completely from love for God, their love no longer had the fervency, depth, or meaning it once had in the church. Oy. They had begun to drift. They had begun to drift. In the letter to the Ephesian church, Paul commends them for their love. And now a second generation of Ephesian believers had been raised up and they had begun to drift in their fervency and their passion, their love for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They were still doing some good things, but they had drifted. They had drifted. The Lord calls them to repent and calls them to do the deeds they had done at first. We're going to look at that in a little bit in application for us. In verse 7, the Lord promises to believers who overcome to eat of the tree of life. This is a promise of reward rather than eternal life. They are overcomers. They are believers. And he promises to them that if they will continue to walk faithfully with him and overcome, that they will have certain privileges, certain rewards as a result of their faithfulness. Smyrna, we see this church reflecting the church of the, the Roman persecution, probably from AD 100 to 313. 100 to 313. In verse 8, it says, The Lord is the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. There's this expression of his life. Why? Because they're, going on, they're undergoing tremendous persecution during this time. And in history, we can look at it and recognize that this church went through uh, awful persecution. Awful. Jonathan wrote a paper not long ago for John Kinzer, and one of the things he wrote on was uh, how Nero uh, persecuted the believers, and he was so disgusted by it that he put a disclaimer at the beginning of his paper, and he said, if you're going to read this, watch out, it's pretty graphic. He was horrified. These people went through some really, really difficult things. In verses 9 through 10, the Lord commends and encourages the Smyrna believers as a result of their tribulation and poverty. He encourages them to be faithful in spite of the persecution. There's no rebuke. There's no call for repentance. These were faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who literally persevered even to the point of death. Verse 11 says that those who overcome will not be hurt by the second death or the lake of fire. He's not saying that if you don't overcome, you're going to go to hell. We don't believe in salvation by works. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. What he's doing is contrasting the level of blessing that they will undergo as a result of walking with the Lord. When they overcome and they are faithful to walk with the Lord, even to the point of not denying him, not denying his name, to the point of even being killed for it, that their blessing is going to be beyond comprehension. What a beautiful picture for us. Pergamum, the third church, reflects the church of the age of Constantine. Probably A.D. 313 through 600. It's very interesting because Pergamum and Thyatira have very similar statements made about them. 
And so if you want to think of it this way, Pergamum is dealing with a threat from the outside in, whereas Thyatira is dealing with a threat from the inside. And you begin to look at what is being said here, and it is absolutely incredible how this church begins to take on the characteristics of a church that is absolutely influenced by the civil authority, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's absolute, a satanic attack upon the true church, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being undercut, salvation by grace through faith being distorted. In verse 12, the Lord is the sharp two-edged sword. His word cuts through false doctrine, which is a part, which was something this church was allowing. He introduces himself and he makes it very clear, my word is a sharp double-edged sword that will cut through false doctrine, false beliefs. And in verse 13, the Lord commends the church for holding fast his name and not denying my faith. In other words, they were true to the gospel. But the problem was is they were beginning to be impacted from the outside by the, the civil arena. Constantine had made the church into a state church, and that partnership began to dilute the truth and the, the veracity of the church itself. In verses 14 through 15, the Lord rebukes the church for allowing some to hold to the teachings of Balaam, which were teachings about immorality, sexual immorality. And the Nicolaitans were probably, again, not only is their teaching of immorality certainly as a byproduct, but there was a separating of the church clergy from the people. There was an inordinate separation here. There was a hierarchy established, which was obviously not from the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord commands them to repent or he will bring judgment. He'll make war against them with the sword of his mouth. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to cut through all the motives and all the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. When we have wrong belief systems, the word of God is able to cut through those wrong belief systems, those wrong motives, and bring clarity and bring light to his truth and to our thinking. In verse 17, the Lord promises to overcomers the hidden manna and a white stone with a name on it that no one knows except those who have received it. What a beautiful picture of God's love. You stay faithful to me. You keep walking with me, and I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you with the manna. I'm going to reward you with a stone that has a name on it that nobody else knows except you and me. Wow. The fourth church, Thyatira, in chapter 2, reflects the church of the Dark Ages, probably from 600 to 1517, quite a long period of time. And in verse 18, the Lord presents himself as having eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. The eyes of flaming fire, he can see through everything. He can see through it all. You know, there's not one motive that we have. There's not one thing that we do. There's not one thing that we think that the Lord doesn't have an absolute understanding about us and is able to see through the motives, see through all the different aspects of who we are. I don't know if that's sobering to you, but that's sobering to me. Burnished bronze feet. He's able to carry out whatever just judgment that he makes. We talk about the Lord's feet being reflected in this way. What he's saying is whatever judgment that he makes is going to be accurate. It's going to be true. And the Lord has the right and the ability to carry out that judgment. 
verse 19, the Lord commends them for growing in their deeds. They were increasing in their deeds. Amen. May that be said of us. And then in verses 20 through 24, in various ways, the Lord rebukes them for allowing or tolerating the teachings of Jezebel, which would include immorality, etc. Verse 22, he gives a call to repentance for those who hold to the teachings of this Jezebel, the immorality that is being profligated here. And in verses 25 through 26, the Lord promises to the overcomers authority over the nations to serve the Lord functionally, usefully. That's a lot of information. I get that. (laughs) It's a fire hydrant. And I probably touched about one-tenth of it. But what can we learn from these churches? What can we learn from these churches? Well, first of all, the church of Ephesus, our passion for Christ and his word. Our passion for Christ and his word. Where are we in our personal walk with the Lord? What consumes our thoughts moment by moment, day by day? Why do we do the things that we do? Do we do them because we're just being dutiful? We do them because we're just supposed to? We do them because we just know that they're the right thing to do? Or are we doing the things that we do because of a love relationship with the Lord, that we're passionate about him and we're willing to follow him, and the activity is an outflow of our love for Christ, our love for his word? There's a lot of things the church of Ephesus is doing that's good. The Lord lists some of them off. He says, you don't tolerate evil men. You're discerning about those who claim to be one thing but are another, meaning the false apostles. You're discerning about this. In other words, you know enough truth to know who is actually supposed to be an apostle and who is not. You persevere, you're enduring for the name of Christ. Those are good things. And may it be said of us that we would have discernment, that we'd be in the word of God, that we would recognize the truth of things. We would recognize what's really evil versus what's really good, what's of God versus what's not. May it be said of us that we would persevere and endure for the name of Christ, no matter what the cost might be. But the truth is we can be sidetracked by the works. We can be sidetracked for our love of being right. We can be sidetracked by all the things that we do. And we as the Ephesian believers can begin to leave our first love, which is Christ himself. We can get our eyes off of him and onto other things, even though those things may be good. How are we focused on the Lord? How are we walking with him in our daily lives? How are we sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit who uses the word of God to direct our path? How are we walking with the Lord? No matter who we come in contact with, no matter where we are, that we are constantly in fellowship with our Lord. And the things that we do are a result of our love for the Lord. Are the things that we're doing, the stand for truth that maybe we take, the effort we put in to walking with the Lord, are they all a result of our love for the Lord or are they works 
that we're trying to perform in some way for him. So that's a big difference, folks. Well, what about Smyrna? What do we learn from them? You know, from the church of Ephesus, our passion for Christ and his word for the church of Smyrna, how about our perseverance and suffering? Perseverance and suffering. The willingness to suffer for the name of Christ. You know, I'm reminded sometimes when I start going through some things and I start having a pity party for myself. I know you've never done that, right? Nobody's ever had a pity party for themselves. You have not yet resisted to the point of what? Shedding blood. I think about the people that are being martyred throughout this world. I think about their faithfulness to the very end. What an amazing journey. We had a picture of, in the Revelation video of those men lined up in the orange suits that were about to be killed, beheaded by ISIS for their faith. And I don't know if you were here last year, but the head of ICM began to share the story behind those guys because they went and visited where they were from. And they began to hear the stories and the testimonies how those men, as they were being killed, were crying out to one another to stay faithful, that they love Jesus. Wow, what an amazing truth that the families were actually able to lead people to Christ and went back to that very spot and used that area to baptize these new converts as a testimony of God's faithfulness and his love and his goodness. Wow. Folks, are we willing to follow the Lord? Are we willing to persevere in suffering, even if it comes to the point where one day, our lives are threatened. Do we have a heavenly perspective or an earthly one? Is it about our comfort or about his glory? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Aren't you glad for God's grace in that? Because I think when we begin to walk with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, we begin to learn to die to self right now, today. And if that moment ever comes, we have learned to die to self, and that's just one more step of learning to die to self. And we can trust the Lord to give us the grace necessary to walk through whatever it may be that he calls us into for his glory, for his honor. The church of Smyrna, they persevered in suffering. What a beautiful picture. Pergamum, our purity in the culture our purity in the culture. They tolerated the Nicolaitans, which again was probably the separating in an inordinate way the laity from the professional clergy. This allowed for all kinds of abuses to take place within the church. The idea of anybody joining the church, no uh, parameters, the gospel being diminished. There, were, there was a, a state church moment here that never should have taken place because the church began to water down the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, all kinds of immorality flooded into the church. All kinds of different things began to take place within the church because unbelievers were joining the church because all they had to do is say, well, I'm a believer. I got baptized. No big deal. They didn't have to confess. They didn't have to recognize. They didn't have to be taught. They were part of the state, and therefore it was a big club. Oh. 
And so the holiness of the church began to be diminished. Wrong doctrine began to be taught. Furthermore, this church allowed for the teaching of Balaam. And if you remember, going back historically, what Balaam did in order to cause Israelite to sin before God is he suggested take the Midianite women, take the Moabite women, and go and lure the Jewish men into sexual immorality, and that will cause God to bring judgment upon them. And that's exactly what happened. See, this immoral behavior, this mixing of something that should never be mixed, Boy, do we got to be careful about that, friends. And there's all kinds of different ways that we could go with that one. How have we allowed the civil? How have we allowed the community? How have we allowed the world and its belief systems and its thinking to infiltrate our own personal lives into the very church of God itself to where we are diminished in walking with God in holiness? And as a result, our testimony has been diminished. How has that happened in our lives? Syncretism abounded. The worship of idols and statues and all kinds of different things. You could go on and on and on with this. In our own personal lives, how have we allowed the world to influence us, to change the way we think, to kind of shift us off the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, walking by faith in Christ, that we have a tomorrow that is greater than today, that we don't live for the world, we live for God's kingdom, that we are here in order to walk with the Lord and walk with him in all his ways and all that he has for us according to his strength and his power and his grace as he transforms us. How are we walking with him? How are we allowing the world to impact us? Thyatira was very similar to this, but it wasn't so much the outside in, it was the inside. It was the very corruption within the body of Christ, the very people of God. And the Lord puts it in terms of Jezebel. Some people want to believe that there was a specific individual in this church named Jezebel who was teaching immorality. And that may be, It's one of those grace moments. We don't know. We weren't there. We don't have a historical record of that in the sense of that there was an actual person. What we do know is scripturally, when a woman is used to speak of something in terms like this, it's usually about a religious system. Israel is called the bride of Christ. Uh, Jezebel was probably uh, a very false religious system that had come up in the midst of the body of believers. And she was teaching, or this religion was teaching, corruption. Corruption of what? The gospel, the grace of Christ. Corruption with regard to living. What we believe will be seen in the way that we live. Our actions simply acknowledge what we believe on the inside. And so you begin to see false teaching taking place. You begin to see a salvation by works rather than salvation by grace through faith. You begin to see religious immorality and abandonment of faith and grace, of salvation in Christ alone. Rather, you see an allegiance of the things of this world rather than an allegiance with God and his way. The holiness of God diminished. This allowed for major abuses within the church and a false gospel being presented. The witness and the character of the body of Christ itself was diminished. The impact on the community, the impact on the lost was diminished. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum says it this way, Jezebel thus became a very real picture And he uses the Catholic Church and all its ideas concerning what was wrong in terms of works and indulgences and all the different aspects of what was being purported to be gospel but was not. Evolved into during the period of the Dark Ages, it introduced a paganism that resulted in idolatry and spiritual fornication, and it became a new religious system bearing little resemblance to the New Testament church. Wow. Folks, what what are we allowing ourselves to believe from the very inside within the body of Christ that ultimately begins to be a false gospel that has nothing to do with the grace of God, has nothing to do with the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is, and as a result, our testimony is diminished because we get our eyes off of Christ, and Christ in and through us being revealed is not taking place as it ought to. How are we walking with the Lord in the midst of our world and in the midst of all that's going on around us to where if we were accused of being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there'd be enough evidence to actually convict us? That's the issue. So in summary, have we left our first love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Maybe we're doing a lot of good things. We're doing all kinds of stuff. We're like that duck on the water, just kind of gliding along, and you look underneath, and man, that thing's paddling, paddling, going. But we've left our first love. We're working out of the energy of the flesh instead of out of the spirit of God and the energy of God's grace and his life in and through us. Are we willing to suffer for his name's sake? These are little things, but are we willing to suffer for his name's sake in the sense of the workforce and the things that are going on at perhaps work? Or maybe it might even be within your family. You're a believer in the midst of your family. There's pressure for you to do certain things, to conform in a certain way. And you've got to take a stand and say, no, Lord, I want to follow you in this. Whatever it may be, school, my goodness. How are we walking with the Lord? Are we willing to suffer for his name's sake? How are we being impacted by the world in a way that has tarnished our testimony? I'm reminded of what Paul told the Corinthian believers. He said, you're walking as mere men. And what he's saying there to the believers, to believers, is he's saying, I can't tell the difference between you and unbelievers any longer because you're fighting and you're factious and you're not unified and all the different reasons that he gives to the Corinthian believers. You're walking as mere men. Are we walking as mere men? Is there a difference in our lives? Not because of the works or because of what we can do, but rather because of the grace of Christ in us, because of the transforming ability and power of God in us to change us and his light, his life being made manifest through us. And lastly, are we staying faithful to God's word and his truth? We're not allowing the world's thinking to infiltrate our church and or our own lives. We're not allowing this consumerism to get us off track. (laughs) We're not allowing the things of the world to be Predominant within our lives, we're allowing the things of God to be what we're focused on, recognizing that we're not living for today. We're living for the Lord. We're living for tomorrow. We know where we're headed. We have hope, great hope in this. And we have the privilege of walking with the Lord day by day, moment by moment. How are we allowing the things of the world to get us off track, get us frustrated, get our eyes off of Christ? And as a result, 
slowly, bit by bit, we find ourselves discouraged, frustrated, angry even, giving up. When the truth of the matter is, is the Lord is all powerful. The Lord's in control. The Lord's on his throne. The Lord knows exactly what's going on and he knows exactly what he's going to do and he will do it. How are we walking with God, folks? How are we walking with the Lord? Revelation 2.29, and this is said to every church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Blessed are those who read, who listen to and heed the words of this prophecy. How are we listening to, internalizing, and with intention saying, yes, Lord, I will follow you, and thank you for your grace to even be able to do so. How are we saying that? How's that our heart cry? How's that our prayer? How are our lives being given to Christ? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 